Welcome to The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like Ace-King are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. I told you a few months ago that there are some very exciting reasons why I've been especially busy lately. Well, one such reason is that I'm coming out with Chess Queens. It's a totally updated and revised version of my previous book on women in jazz. Right now, pre-orders are my love language. With that in mind, let's get into this episode's special guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. Today, you may sense I'm in an extra special good mood. Well, yes, it's true because I have a really special guest, one of my best and longest time friends, somebody you definitely want on your side, unless it's on the left side of you at the poker table. It is Katie Stone. She's been playing online poker professionally for over a decade and has amassed over $1 million in earnings and two WSOP circuit ranks. She also has an entrepreneurial background. She founded USA Chess, the national network of chess camps. So she and I go way back into the world of 64 squares, as well as 52 cards. She's also a poker commentator and the president of the Cleverly Stone Foundation. As we'll dive into in the pod, Katie has been a visionary in making poker more inclusive. She founded the Grind Debts back in 2011. I was part of this group. And she aimed to show that women were excelling in poker. The hand that she's bringing us today comes from the Solve for Why Heads Up Challenge in Las Vegas back in 2018. The charity Heads Up Challenge hosted at the Solve for Why headquarters. Um, That's Matt Berkey former grid guest as well. And Katie started off with wins only to face an especially fierce opponent in the final four. Poker Detox founder and high stakes, no limit player, Nick Howard. Katie, welcome to the grid. I can't wait to hear about this hand. Hello, my lovely and wonderful friend. Thank you so much for finally having me, getting me on the show. I know you've been asking me for a long time and it's just been schedule craziness. But yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to to finally talk to you on your award-winning show. Thank you so much. You know, I'm really excited that we're bringing you on for this particular hand because this Heads Up Challenge was hosted by another great friend of yours, Matt Berkey, and we both played in it. You're playing in this amazing Heads Up tournament. It's being filmed. It's really filled with incredible players. Farrah Galfon, Matt Berkey, Jesse Sylvia, Russell Thomas, um, you're playing and set us up for this third round match. So you had already won two matches before facing Nick Howard in the final four. Yeah, my first round was versus Kitty Quo, um, and I won that round. And then the next round I played Hafu, 
she's a, a streamer, gamer online. She's pretty new to poker. One versus her in round two. And then that brought us to the final four, which was uh, me versus Nick Howard. And then Jesse Sylvia played Russell Thomas. Oh, great friends, right? Aren't they best friends? That's funny. I think they are. They're pretty good buds. Yeah. And by the way, Hafu, uh, maybe new to poker, but she is just like a beast at games. You know, she gets so good at games once she applies herself to them because she's a Hearthstone champion. She actually won a chess tournament on chess.com called PogChamps. Oh, nice. This was after the Heads Up Challenge, but like anything she applies herself to that's in the gaming arena, she seems to kind of get good at quickly. So that was a nice win as well. So you won those two matches and then facing Nick Howard in the final four, the founder of Poker Detox. He was a run at once pro before that. And he's also a high stakes player, kind of successful in various formats, heads up full ring, even tournaments. Yeah, I definitely knew that he was just very, very strong player. And I knew who he was before the the Heads Up Challenge too. Him and him and Berkey are good friends. So I had met him through this Heads Up Challenge, but I, I obviously understood that very smart guy, very used to playing high stakes poker, you know, had a lot of experience coaching players, had a lot of experience within a stable. So had seen uh, a lot of different uh, kinds of players, you know, at, at different points in their career. So for sure, I understood that I was the underdog in this match, but I was at this point of the challenge feeling okay, you know, cause we were in the final four. So we were in the money, which was kind of cool. I mean, we, we definitely did buy into this tournament and we definitely had prizes. So final four was in the money. And so that was nice. At the same time, I did do a little bit of preparation because this challenge lasted a few days. I was able to watch the hands from his previous matches too. And so I did watch every single hand uh, that he played. This was the only time I'd seen him play. And I understood that he was a very aggressive player. He was definitely going to also get a little bit out of line and meaning that he was going to make my decisions a lot tougher, likely. Um, I also knew that he didn't know too much about me other than I was coming from online and that I was friends with Matt Berkey. Right. And he also was really kind of preparing specifically for the format. So there was an interesting Annie structure in this event where the Annie's escalated very quickly. It was before Big Blind Annie was widely adopted. um, And even though it was heads up format, it started out with that big bland Annie. So in the hand that you're going to show us, it was five ten plus the, the $10 Annie. I don't play a ton of heads up, but I was just really excited to face a tough opponent. And also, even though I knew that I was a pretty big underdog, the fact that I'd won my two matches prior to that gave me a little bit of confidence. And then also I did do a, a decent amount of study before I even got to Vegas for, for the challenge. It's interesting because I think that you mentioned how important heads up is. And if I'm remembering correctly, you won a couple rings, heads up circuit rings um, soon after this challenge. Let's see. So yeah, I think I won a ring in 19 and then an online WCP online circuit ring. And then I, I think my next one was like a year and a half later in 2021. You know, big difference in online tournaments a lot of the times, especially in WSOP. You know, generally there's not a ton of play. The payout structures are are, are pretty top heavy. And that also kind of incentivizes a lot of fast play and, and a lot of big all-ins and stuff like that. But you know, heads up, I think when I was when I was in both of those online tournaments, I wasn't extremely deep. 
Uh, and so it was just a little bit of a, a, you know, simpler decisions, a lot more easier to get it, get all the chips in the middle in one hand before the flop. Whereas here we started a little bit deeper, but with the you know aggressive ante structure, it does incentivize a little bit of faster play too sometimes. Setting up the hand, you're playing against Nick Howard. And in this particular hand, it's early in on the match, 5-10, you're on the button with the pocket fours. And tell us about how the action went. So yes, I have fours, blinds are 510. Um, I, it's important to notate, I do have the four spades uh, as one of my fours. I believe I opened to 30 at 510. Nick, I think he three bet to 100 or 105. I think that most of the time, and, and, and I, I should have just flatted the fours, you know, two days before that, I've been watching the hands that he played. So this particular situation, I decided to four bet, which I realize is not the standard play at that stack depth. Maybe I was feeling a little frisky, Jen, but you know, there's something to be said too for you know, facing a really tough opponent and just kind of not wanting to get mowed down because, you know, he had already three bet me, I think three times, whether or not calling or, or four betting is better in game. I decided to put some more money in the pot, which is a little bit different from what I would normally do if I was playing an online poker tournament. Totally. But you had observed his play from before and he was being very aggressive. He actually said in the interview that he felt like most of the competitors in the tournament were not aggressive enough in tuned with the structure and the format. And so he was definitely amping up the aggression. So this was a reaction to that. And I think that makes a lot of sense. At the start of his hand, he had, I think, 1250 and I had about 1100 at, at 510. He three bet to 105. My four bet was to 300 again. Had I chosen to take that specific four bet line uh, today, I maybe would adjust my size to maybe slightly less just based on how much I had back and understanding what the SPR would be going to the flop, which I think was maybe 1.25 hot size bet on the flop left, which is, you know, kind of puts myself in a little bit of an awkward situation. And I remember too, during the hand, he was very intently staring at me quite a bit, uh, you know, watching every move, watching. And I, I also remember just being very calm and focused and very sure of myself. And I, I remember this feeling so intently. And I think that that was one of the things that I really enjoyed and took away from this match in particular was just being able to feel comfortable in that element, in that field with some pretty brilliant players and feeling like, yes, I'm an underdog, but also uh, feeling like I could still play poker with them. He did call my four bet. I mistakenly thought he may have a three bet fold range pre versus me in this event. Uh, he, he ended up having a really big hand during this hand. So he may have, you know, at another time with another hand been able to three bet fold. The other thing too, about four betting for, with me versus him is just kind of taking advantage of the fact that he didn't know who I was really at all. So he ended up calling the 300. And now I have, I think 850 back and he has slightly more. The flop was eight, six of spades. And then just a, like the deuce of clubs or something like that. So of course my four betting range, um, should be pretty weighted towards big pairs, you know, tens, jacks, queens, kings, aces, and then all the, the, the big broadways. His three betting range probably would be slightly more aggressive than a computer would tell us, but the computer really does tell us that that three betting range should be quite, quite aggressive. And so understanding that within that range that he should be three betting, and I would think that he would be 
are all of those kind of those those mid suited connectors, you know, seven, six suited, eight, seven suited, nine, eight suited, all of these, there's a lot of those kinds of hands in there. In addition to the big Broadway offsuit cards and suited cards um, in his three bet range. And so it's a little bit dicey understanding that I'm going against that range, but he can have three bet folds, especially with those, those mid suited or off suit hands. So you did bet on the flop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back to the flop. Yeah. So eight, six of spades, deuce of clubs. He checks. I bet, uh, I think 30, 35% pot size bet he calls. And at this point I have, you know, less than pot size, bet on the turn, not a great situation to, to be putting myself in, but my hand, you know, does look pretty wrong at this point. And I, and I am going to try to continue to tell this story if I can. The turn is an offsuit eight. However, it really shouldn't do anything. It doesn't bring a backdoor flush draw. It doesn't complete the spade draw on the board. It's not a hand that I would not continue on uh, when I'm for betting and betting the flop, right? So like if I, if I am telling the story that I have queens, aces, kings, jacks, uh, 10, something like that, I, I likely would be all in at this point based on how much is in the pot and based on how much I have back. However, I realized at this point that I'm not in an amazing situation with the, the, the pre-flop call and the flop call. And it's uh, a time maybe for me to, to, to slow down a little bit. And, and so I ended up checking. Um, and then the river was seven. Definitely is I think more favorable to his range than it is mine. If he does have a lot of those interesting, funny hands that are he's permitted to to be three betting with, and then and then maybe calling. He bets very small, which was small compared to the pot, but a lot compared to the rest of my stack. So he he bet about half of my stack left. I had five fifty left, um, and he bet about two fifty, if I remember correctly. Um, I thought for quite a bit, and it, I felt like it was very clear that uh, I was not going to be winning the hand at this point. Um, I made a, a pretty, Nick called it disciplined, <laughs> whether you can call it a disciplined fold or, or not, I made a pretty disciplined fold and, and saved my chips. And he told me he had two jacks and I, I didn't tell him what I had at the time, but he ended up actually having two jacks. And so it ended up being a good fold, whether I should have made the fold or not, based on how I played the hand, I don't know, but I got myself into a tough spot and then I managed to somehow get myself out of it. Yeah. So you, you lived it till another day and ended up losing the match anyway, but you didn't lose your whole stack on that hand. So tell me more about the psychology of playing heads up. At this point in my career, uh, so this was early 2018, this was about less than a year into my kind of rebooting as a poker player, so to speak. Um, I, at the, towards the end of 2017, I hired a couple coaches and I had been coming off of two years of, of nursing my son and staying home and not playing poker. And when I started playing poker again during the summer of 2017, I realized that I was you know, a little bit behind in a lot of areas and that I needed to do a lot of work to catch up. And so early 2018 is when this match took place. And so I had been, 
you know, doing a lot of work and, and was learning a lot of new things quickly at the same time and trying to implement a lot of things quickly at the same time as well. And, you know, I, I got confused also in, in a lot of, a lot of ways. Uh, and, and it occurred too, even at home online <laughs> at one point, you know, looking back in the huds at one point, my blind versus blind stats were just a little bit kind of nutty, you know, um, because you, you learn something and then you kind of go too far to one side and then you have to adjust. But this was a huge kind of breakthrough for me and a really strong learning experience and also just a really great confidence boost too. I, I felt like I performed okay under, you know, kind of a, a manufactured pressure, you know, your, your heads up and you're playing for a decent amount of money and it's being streamed for three straight days with commentary. And, I, you know, I kind of went into it looking at it like this is kind of good practice for like when I do finally get to like a really big final table and I'm heads up and there's lights and there's cameras and there's people watching and, and I've never been in that situation before. Um, and so this kind of gave me that experience and got me a little bit comfortable. And, and like I mentioned before, I was really pleased with how comfortable I did feel. It was a good kind of realm that I, that I got my mind into that gave me confidence to, uh, you know, go back home and, and, and really just hit the books, which I did. And, and also gave me confidence back, uh, you know, online whenever I, when I got heads up in, in the online poker tournaments, which is how I have generally, you know, made my living for the last 10 years. I love your comment about manufactured pressure. I think that's so important, whether you're training in poker or chess, it's very difficult to approximate the actual pressure of being in a live event, especially where there's cameras and extra intensity, because perhaps you're playing in a larger buy-in. Of course, live people play for a higher average buy-in most often than they do from home playing online. And with whole cards too. Yes, the whole card camps, exactly. If you're not used to playing with whole cards or you're maybe a little bit nervous about people seeing your cards and commentating on what you're going to do and it's on a stream, you know, this is this, it was just a great experience to, uh, to, to kind of get that out of the way and be like, all right, next time when I'm doing this for real money, you know, on a, on a much bigger stage, it'll be a little bit familiar and, and I won't be as nervous of a wreck. And I'll realize that I got through it, you know, the first time and I realize how I felt during, and, and I definitely made a point to try to remember exactly how I was feeling at different points, because for me, and I don't know if you experienced this at all, all growing up when I was playing chess as a kid, one of the reasons that I quit playing chess is I always kind of had uh, issues just with being in person across the board from somebody and um, being intimidated. I just had a, you know, a default um, concern and I was always much more comfortable, you know, especially in poker online because I <laughs> didn't have to see the people in front of me. I was more comfortable away from my opponent. I'm not really sure why that was. And so poker was uh, kind of one way for me to attack that deficit in my, my repertoire, so to speak. As I got into poker, I was nervous about playing shorthanded because I you know, wasn't very good at it. And I you know, realized I was going to be getting shorthanded while playing poker tournaments, but I knew I wasn't very good at it and therefore I didn't want to play. And so I remember one time this had to have been in, I don't know, 2009, 2010, where I accidentally registered a six max tournament on poker stars. And I sat out of the tournament for like the first like couple hours, because I was just like, I, you know, I don't want to play. I know I'm not good at shorthanded and I just don't want to play. 
I eventually did play the tournament. I mean, I think it was like a $10 tournament or a $20 tournament. But today, six max is my favorite form of live poker. And so the things that I tend to notice my deficits in, I generally have attacked them and then eventually I enjoy them. This heads up challenge got me really interested in heads up. And so I did actually continue working on heads up for the next year or so, hoping that I would get heads up in, in some big poker tournaments soon. And, and then I eventually did online. So that was cool. It is interesting to hear what you're saying, that the things that you're afraid of, if you end up attacking them, they can actually become your strengths. And I like that you ended up um, forbenning the four. Oh, good. <laughs> I mean, of course, from like a strategic point of view, it has its flaws. Like yes. I assume you were going to fold if you jammed and that's yes. very unfortunate. I mean, it's not unfortunate against Jax, but it's unfortunate against his range, right? But the fact that this is kind of like in a way it's like practice for making sure that you have like courage to do aggressive things based on a combination of strategy and reads, right? And obviously you knew that he was three bending way more than um, normal. So you went with that is really interesting. And it kind of ties into software wise philosophy in a lot of ways that they have these training um, seminars, which I know you've participated in many of them. And one of the biggest selling points is that the uh, participants get to play with the whole card hands, right? So that they can get comfortable in that format as they, of course, dream to be playing not only in the WSOP, but to end up at a EPT or WSOP uh, final table where their every move is going to be dissected. I think it's a brilliant concept, actually. You know, I mean, Berkey's always done, he's always kind of been ahead of the game, so to speak, in a lot of different areas. You know, this format was interesting um, and it was useful. And then, and, and the academies are great. You know, they're manufacturing the, the, the pressure and, and the lights and the cameras and the whole cards. And, and it's, it's tough for poker players to, to replicate that in any other environment. I sure as heck would want to be a little bit prepared in that environment. If I, if I planned on sticking around poker and making a final table at some point, you might go to an EPT, you might go to a WSOP and, and uh, you know, you're going to be on the televised final table. And so it's nice to be able to have some preparation for that. And, and you know, Berkey's the only one that's uh, realized that and understands that. So he's done something about it, which is really, really cool and beneficial for the poker community. You and I both come from a chess background. And I, I think that's interesting, even from heads up because being a chess player, heads up feels like such a familiar format, right? Woman versus woman, man versus woman, whatever the case is. It's one person versus the other person. And you're trying to get into their head, prepare for that person and dismantle them. None of this like multi-way pots and having to think about what that person thinks about what you're doing and how the third person thinks about that. There's something very pure about the heads up format, which reminds me a lot about chess. For a long time, shorthanded play and thus heads up was just kind of terrifying for me. Uh, and, and like I said, it, it came from some of the issues that I experienced as a young chess player and, and whether or not that had anything to do with me being a woman or a female, you know, when I was playing classics, there were girls, but there weren't a ton of girls, you know, and, um, and then later on, as I, as I got into the other side of chess as the instructional side, um, it was always a challenge to to get the girls to stick around, and there was always a, a a time where you would you would always have a ton of girls when they were you know super young, 
Um, I remember having the coaching the uh, the kindergarten national championship team, which was a team of 100% kindergarten girls. That was not the norm. And as they got older, they would kind of drop off. And that was always a tough thing. I actually played later in, in my scholastic career. So middle school and high school uh, is when I started playing tournaments. Whether or not I understood how I was feeling or why I was feeling, it created a little bit of anxiety for me. And I didn't have a great support system to help me. I mean, I had a chess coach, but these weren't the kinds of things that we chatted about. My, I don't know if you remember Miles Artiman. He was my first, he was a, a feeding master from Florida. He was my first chess coach because he lived in Houston and we never really chatted about the psychological aspects of chess, which I think was a little bit uh, too, you know, I in particular could have really used it just being as, as a female in, in chess. I remember just the anxiety kind of getting in the way of, of me being able to actually play my best. And that was very frustrating and it was discouraging for me and it Uh, you know, ultimately led to my stopping playing, but I continued in chess very much so. I did not leave the chess world for for quite a while after that. Wonderful point. I think that as girls and and later women, um, really people of all genders, um, grow in the games, different things that happen to you in your life, in your personality, things just become more complicated. And it's not just about then learning the technical aspects of the game. It's also about the mental game. And people in poker have caught on to this. It's been so many years of poker players, you know, starting with like Jared Tendler and Elliot Rowe, who are really pioneers in this area in poker. Now it's just like really typical for poker players to have technical coaching and mental game coaching. And the cool thing is it's starting to carry over into chats. So you see like Magnus Carlsen, NBL, like they talk about their mental game coaches now. And I, I think that that's something that needs to spread even more further in chess because people don't realize that it's normal to have all these anxieties and hangups. If you don't attack it, you might just quit the game. I mean, it's arguably just as important as your theoretical work that you're doing, right? Um, I, I know for a fact that was what plagued me as as a a scholastic player in particular. Like I said, I I stopped playing scholastic chess, but I stayed in the chess world. This really had an impact on the type of chess instruction and, and the type of chess company that I built after that, because we were not, I was not focused on finding the next world champion. Um, I was focused, I was more focused on the mental side of it and more focused on the process because I understood what the process of learning chess had done for me as a youngster. Um, and, but I also understood that the, the problems that I had kind of dissecting and getting through those things because of the anxiety and the frustration. And so by focusing on making chess fun and and not focusing on the result of winning the game and really, really just focusing on um, helping the kids think through every single move, being, you know, nice and generous competitors. You know, that was just as important as them learning how to play chess and getting better and improving, you know, just as important was their interaction with their opponent and writing their moves down and getting to their games on time and doing the proper preparation and and studying and doing tactics. And that entire process was really what I believed in. And that was what came through with the the chess camps in USHS. And I think that it really resonated with the kids. 
Amazing. And I love that philosophy because I completely agree with it too in both poker and chess. Now, don't get me wrong. I do think that you can gain more mental and emotional skills if you're even better because then you get like more deeply into yourself and you kind of like really come up against your plateaus and your weaknesses. But uh, at the end of the day, it's still about that mirror of your mind and like really becoming a better version of yourself. The more I work in chess and poker, the more I realize that, that we want to make these games like a net positive for people, especially young people. Yeah. You got to kind of focus on those psychological elements and make sure that people are are feeling good about themselves and like improving their their lives and their their mental games through it. And it, it's so much more easily said than done. Now, speaking about the, the overlap between poker and chess, regrettably, right now in the poker world, as we record this, there are a number of scandals related to cheating um, and collusion and all these kind of negative things about poker that we really don't want the wider public to associate with the game. What do you think the poker world can learn about game integrity from the chess world? Hmm. I think one of the things that kind of stands out for me is, you know, in chess, it's so understood that you have to work very, very hard and you have to study a lot of theory and it's a lot of memorization and it's a lot of work that just in and of itself attracts a certain type of person, I think, right? So somebody who is going to be very good at chess is going to understand the commitment required and the amount of time, the amount of energy that needs to be expended. They're more likely to put their heart and soul into something like this in order to become a very good player. That doesn't completely exist in poker, I don't think. I think poker is, because of its kind of associated with gambling, people can think that it can be a quicker, easy way to make money. And so that can attract a very wide range of individuals, uh, maybe individuals that don't exactly have the best interests of the game or the people that they're playing with at heart, if that makes sense. Poker is also a lot more popular than chess. It's also marketed a lot wider than chess. Uh, and so by just by that fact, you're going to get a lot of you know, much wider range of individuals from different backgrounds. And, and unfortunately, that wider net is going to include more cheaters. Maybe, you know, it just has to do with um, the nature of the culture that the game itself attracts. I would beg to differ that poker is more popular than chess. I think it's pretty close these days. Well, yeah, now it's a little bit different for sure in the last few years. Yeah. The thing is that chess includes tons and tons of children. In fact, that's probably the largest piece of the audience. Certainly like rated chess players, there's more children um, than any other demographic in the United States, for instance. Like that's more than half of the U.S. chess membership is minors. And I do think that that makes maybe the organizers um, more uh, attuned to like these ethical issues. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. But that's not to say there's not cheating in chess. There certainly is. There's, there's tons of cheating in chess, but I think you're right that um, people do tend to associate being good at the game with um, an honor in itself, which is not always the case in poker. Like some people think that, but a lot of people think of it as a means to an end. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's, you know, we've seen, a decent amount of that too in our in, in both of our careers, right? Both you and I. Um, and that's, you know, as as I've gotten older, I'm sure as 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 you, you know, you've gotten older too, 
we get a little bit more opinionated about those things and we get a little bit more protective of our community. We are also both mothers now. So that, that changes you, that changes your, your behavior, that changes uh, a lot of how you react to things. It also just kind of changes your, your viewpoint and, and how you see things for the better. I believe it, it kind of instinct takes over and really forces you to perform as well as you possibly can, at least for me, it did. And, you know, becoming a mom was really the kind of the fire, the spark almost that, that really became ignited uh, for me in poker, because now I had something more important to, to work for, to live for, to be an example for, I now had legacy. Uh, I now had a, you know, a, a little boy that was, you know, looking up to his mom, who's a poker player. You know, I, I've made a decision that I was going to have to be the best darn poker player I could be. We didn't really have that many poker mentors in in poker. We, there were way more chess female mentors than than women poker mentors, right? There's amazing women in both games. And I think we're really lucky. And I think actually that is one thing I would say about game integrity that it's not like women don't cheat. Obviously women cheat in poker and chess as well. But I do think that in terms of like having like a balanced view on all sorts of different topics, you must have female representation at the top of the business and every area, not just at the tables, but in the uh, the business itself. And you obviously have a lot of overlap there. So former players sometimes end up in the business, our mutual friend, Rebecca McAdam is obviously a huge boss at Poker Stars, which now sponsors this podcast, uh, full disclosure there. Um, but you, you got to see women on all these levels of leadership, as I do think it really helps for things like game integrity, because they, you know, we tend to see things in a slightly different way. Um, and I love also what you say about being a mom, because it is true that so many poker players um, have new success after they have children or when their partners are pregnant or when they're pregnant. And yeah, of course, it's sometimes it's just like a joke, like something you notice, like baby lock, but there could be something there as well that it kind of motivates you to be the most best version and most successful version of yourself. Yeah, totally. And that's exactly what happened with me. I mean, it was legitimately like a light switch. I, I don't know another way to explain it. I had been playing online poker and you know a little bit of live poker. I definitely prefer live, uh, online over live. I'd had decent success. I was making a living. My husband and I, we didn't need that much to survive. You know, we were just having fun and playing poker, mostly like, you know, playing online on poker stars. And we moved to Mexico. We lived there for a couple of years and we had a great life. And I think about how I was back then. And I, I kind of, you know, laugh a little bit just because I know how competitive I am by nature. And I know how competitive I was all growing up. But then there was this part of my life where, you know, you, I, I switched to a new game and, or in a new industry and, and, you know, I found success pretty, pretty readily. And, and, and then I got, you know, I got kind of comfortable and just kind of like, you know, go with the flow, you know, it was just a little easy to just, you know, it was just easy. It wasn't, it wasn't too difficult. When I came back after taking two years off though, from nursing my son and not working, that's when I realized that I really had some work to do. Maybe that also contributed. I was a little bit pissed off that, you know, uh, I was finding not to sound arrogant, but, you know, not being good at something wasn't something that I enjoyed. So I wanted to be good at what I was doing. Um, and so that really just, uh, in addition to having this new little baby, whatever I was going to do, I was just going to try to be the best. 
Yeah, absolutely. I love that attitude. And something that also strikes me, I mean, I love what you say about having kids and how it changes your perspective and your goals and just the ROI of like going to an event because, you know, you have to provide for childcare or you have to like split up the family for a couple of weeks. So suddenly like you need to have a higher ROI to justify making the trip. So you either have to get better at poker, play more events, play higher buy-in events. It kind of puts you in that different mentality of like a businesswoman. You know, one thing that I thought would interest you as well is like how we both live and die by the sword when it comes to like solvers, because of course they've enabled certain types of cheating like RTA, but they've also allowed the game of poker to become a little bit more chess-like, which a lot of people totally hate. They hate it so much. I have to say, obviously, because of this podcast, The Grid, which is modeled on this idea that the math of poker is actually really beautiful and that its chess elements are beautiful because I kind of see of like the equilibrium almost as like checkmate that it, you get to that equilibrium and then it's checkmate. It's the end, right? Cause you've reached what you're looking for. So I find there's a lot of beauty in that and that like the understanding it of is so difficult, which ties into what you were saying earlier that maybe it's like in chess being amazing at the game is like an end in itself. And I feel like the solvers have helped people reach that in poker rather than just like constantly questioning what is the solution? It's a little bit of a gray area too, as far as what the solvers actually do for poker, just like, you know, what the solvers have done for chess. I think specifically in poker, because, you know, poker is a very, uh, just like chess, it's, it's a very recreational uh, atmosphere, meaning that it, it's found in casinos. You can walk into a casino and you can play poker. The issue is though, is that with solvers and poker, Recreational players and amateur players who are looking to poker for the fun element and just for the the casual, uh, you know, killing time gambling, quote unquote, element. I worry about what this what the limited information about solvers and what their capabilities may or may not be because of, of their limited understanding and access to that world. I just wonder and worry what it is doing to the recreational player pool. The messaging that comes out about solvers, the messaging that comes out about RTAing, the messaging that comes out about how accessible all of this actually really is. And it's really difficult to quantify because it's difficult to find proof in any of of these things. That's generally what I worry about in poker and with the solvers. Of course, we we love being able to, you know, for example, with my fours hand with Nick, um, I love being able to go into, uh, you know, whatever software you're using or whatever kind of solver you're using. And I, I love being able to go and, and to get an answer, right? And to be able to see this is a preferred line. This is, you know, 20% of the time you're going to do this, 30% of the time you're going to do this much like the the chess engines are going to do for you, right? You're going to be able to look and see what lines, you know, are, are interesting and, and, you know, what move is interesting and what move is, is maybe something you hadn't considered and, and what it actually does. Same thing in poker. Again, it, it's, it's with the messaging is what I'm concerned and how it trickles down and how it trickles down into the general, let's call them the casino population of poker players, because much like the scholastic players in, in chess are kind of the, the fuel and the, the next generation that propels the overall population of chess to grow. Um, these casino and recreational players are that fuel and that next, you know, uh, generation of, of poker players that you hope, uh, you know, continue to grow and enter the game and, and continue to participate in the game. 
once you start injecting questions about the validity of somebody's play or the tools that they're using or the you know they may or not be using it's just a little bit dangerous and so while i don't think that solvers are bad quote unquote for poker they're useful and they have a very important role i think that how they're translated to the general public is where we need to do a lot of work right now I agree. And it's so much more complicated than chess poker solvers, to be honest, because in chess, it's like you use a solver and it tells you like what move you should play or what different different moves that would be decent in the position. Right. Whereas like in poker, it's like telling you what you should do, assuming that your opponent has this range of hands, assuming this happened on the flop and this happened pre-flop. There are so many underlying assumptions that like make the final answer, quote unquote, to be like, extremely tied up with all of these preconditions that unless you're used to using them in and out is almost meaningless. The answer becomes almost meaningless. Whereas in chess, it's very straightforward. You can just start the game and the solver can tell you, oh, you should have played knight g5 there. And you can be like, oh, I should have played knight g5 there. There's not all these underlying conditions. So it is way more complicated, that translation process. I completely, I completely agree with that. I just, uh, I think there's like some, some, uh, some positives there that you really highlighted with kind of like celebrating the skill of the game. I also wanted to ask you about your philosophy because you've seen it change so much in like the, what, 15 years of you being a professional games player is this attitude towards women in the game. So you were a pioneer, as I mentioned in the introduction of like treating women with respect and like trying to model that in your own career and then also encouraging other people to model it. How does it feel to see so many more people agree with you like a decade plus later? It must feel cool, but also kind of like annoying that they didn't listen to you earlier. (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm just happy that we are where we are now. I'm I'm happy. I mean, for sure, the landscape in in poker is is totally different than it was when, you know, we formed Grindettes in, in 2011. There are many, many, many challenging jobs in and around poker that women do, you know, not limited to just playing. There's, you know, dealing, tournament director, marketing, advertising, PR, writing, executive. I mean, there's so many different jobs in and around the poker industry that require a lot of skill and a lot of experience and a lot of understanding of people and just games. But I was very dissatisfied with the representation of women playing the game and how they were also being presented and and, uh, represented. And, you know, because it it didn't exactly paint a very encouraging image for for new women to to join the game. And my concern with that was, was, you know, very similar to chess. I felt that women could really benefit from, you know, not necessarily aspiring to be the number one poker player in the world, just like in chess camps, we weren't trying to find the the next Bobby Fischer, but just the process of playing the game and talking about the game with your friends and thinking about the game and being in a social environment with friends who were also interested in the game. All of these things were just so beneficial for me in chess growing up. And it really gave me a way to model other areas in life that were confusing for me. I had tutors all growing up in several subjects. I found that, you know, one-on-one um, instruction for me was the most effective. I wasn't the, the, the best in, in group learning environments, but because of my tutoring in math that I had all through middle school and high school, I became very good at math. And is it, is it a coincidence that my career is also based in, in, in a game that, that is based in math? 
maybe not. And so my own personal experience with both chess and poker in the effort to improve my own self equity really, really resonated. And I, I was worried that other women would lose out on that. And I, I didn't think that that was fair to the women. I didn't think it was fair to the game because the game had so much to offer us. Poker has solved so many problems for me because I've been able to use what I've learned in poker and apply it to real life. Because mostly every situation that I encounter in life, I translate it into a game. It's the only way I know how to think. It's the only way I know how to understand things. It was a, just a very personal experience for me and kind of grown up making my own way, much like my mother did. And, you know, just kind of doing whatever it was that I felt was right and whatever I was passionate about. And that is why Grindettes formed that I, you know, I, I, I knew you, I knew Jamie Kerstetter and Katie Dozier, and I knew all of these women were brilliant um, outside of poker, but I also felt that that brilliance was very important contributor to their success in poker. And I thought it was also very important for other women to also understand that and know these women because they were all very impressive in their own rights. And they had all had different careers prior to poker and were playing poker at the same time. And, and their careers and their experience were helping them become successful poker players and become successful individuals in the poker world. And no one was talking about any, any women like that. Nobody was making an effort to find any women like this. It was simply, you know, models for hire who was willing to take their clothes off and lay on a poker table and take some photos. That was what the norm was. Or if you were very rich and you made a lot of money in poker, people like that as well. But it didn't, you're right. Like it was like one or the other, like yeah. you were looking for like the millionaire winner or models like those were like the two things because and it's funny that you say that because actually I remember when I first got into poker I would tell people that I was a two-time U.S. Women's champion and I wrote two books and I swear they didn't flinch an eye they did not care at all when I was in like my 20s I didn't wear any makeup I didn't get my hair done but then when I started like getting my makeup and my hair done like people were like oh you're, you're playing poker that's yeah. like so interesting yeah it's funny now being like a, you know, a chess champion and an author, like poker has become much more intellectual. People really care about that stuff. But it, it was funny at the time. I couldn't get people to care at all about that. They didn't care. I mean, of course, eventually poker stars cared because I ended up signing with them and that was nice to see. But that was like a few years after I started playing and it was a really um, long road to that, I'd say. You mentioned that poker helped you in business and modeling also after your mother's extraordinary career. You're now the president of the Cleverly Stone Foundation. Can you tell me how poker most helped you with that? And if you have any story that exemplifies it? Honestly, it started with Grindettes. A good percentage of, of the reason why uh, Grindettes formed was to kind of uh, be successful in my mother's eyes. My mother was a very... Uh, well-known broadcaster and media personality and philanthropist here in Houston, Texas. I grew up, you know, watching her on TV every day, seeing her in the news, listening to her on radio. She was a very beloved figure in Houston um, for her philanthropic activities. And first of all, I, I had a very successful chess business, started the business very young, happily exiting mostly the business uh, to switch over to poker. But there was also this uh, desire to kind of 
prove myself to her as well. And that my first success in the real world, my first entry into the real world with USHS was a huge success. Now I was also going to be successful in this role as well. And this was, you know, an area that I saw that needed to be filled. And so I did model my, my own career after her career. And I was very happy that eventually, you know, down the line, she, she did accept my, my career and she was very supportive of it. And she, you know, as she saw the things that I had started to accomplish in poker and, and the fact that I started to become well-known and respected, and that was really fun for her, for her to watch. It wasn't until 2020 when I had a very, very big transition in my life, um, when my mother passed away and I had to move back to Houston. I, my husband and son and I had been living in New Jersey playing online and I had to move back to Houston to, um, to step into her shoes here in this city as also a broadcaster on Fox 26 and the president of the foundation, which is uh, one of the city's most important uh, charitable endeavors over the last 20 years. And what I found was the transition was pretty easy. So much of the process of becoming good at poker and chess because of the fact that it involves so much self-scrutiny, right? Like you're, you know, getting back to the solvers, you're, you make a a mistake in a poker game, just like you make a a mistake in a chess game, you know, it's going to be your fault most of the time. Um, And so we can go into the solvers and we can see, you know, what we did incorrectly, what we did correctly. However, the willingness to accept that is also another hurdle to get over, right? That I've, that I've just discovered in the, I want, I don't want to say the real world, but the world outside of games I have found is way less likely. They're way less likely to accept that. And they're way less likely to be willing to look for it. I just recently started studying with Dara for specifically ICM uh, and final table play. And during a session with him last week, I realized that I was just really wrong about something for a long time. And I was so happy. I was so excited to have found this mistake. I literally shouted from the rooftops. I texted everybody. I texted like, you know, not everybody. I texted five, you know, very important people like you guys, you guys. I have been so wrong about this. Did you know I was so wrong about? Do you know this? Like, did you, could you? And I, and, and it was. What was it? You got to tell the, tell everyone about what it was. <laughs> so I had been very wrong about understanding ICM pressure um, with regards to uh, flat payout structures versus payout structures that are more top heavy. I was always under the impression that I, ICM pressure was greater with the greater pay jumps. No, completely wrong. The flatter and more logical the payouts uh, is where the ICM pressure exists the most. And because you, you in a way, you have a, a better chance of laddering, right? You have less of a chance of going from eighth to first, which is where all the money is, but you have a much better chance of laddering and making that 12K pay jump and then the next you know 17K pay jump or whatever. It's much more to your benefit to, to kind of guarantee guarantee yourself those ladders, those different levels than it is to shoot for a first place amount. Right. So to give like an extreme example, if first place was like PSPC package and $2,000 and like second place was $1,500, then there would be like almost no ICM pressure at all because you just need to get first place. So you should just play like for chip EV completely. And that's And I just randomly brought up that example, but actually stuff like that does happen because sometimes there's like some 
extraordinary prize, but you can't really chop, chop it into pieces. Like, you know, there's a PSPC or like some kind of like WSOP package in a charity event. And it's just, yeah. it's only for first. And so, yeah, you're right. It's like, that can be counterintuitive to people because they can think, oh, it's so valuable to get heads up. Yeah. But actually, you're, it's not like you're 50-50 to win if you get heads up. <laughs> I'm in a new player pool, so to speak, in Houston as, as a president of a nonprofit, a very, very important, a very visible role in, in this city in particular um, because of who my mother was. And I've found that this is a huge edge I have over my new player pool, so to speak. Um, my continuous and unrelenting uh, self-criticism and, uh, and, and kind of search for excellence, if you will, in, in every move that I make is a little bit different. And it, it could simply be, Jen, that I've had the time to be like that. And I've had the resources to, to adopt this way of living and this way of being. And, and it simply could be that people working in the corporate world or, or a nine to five job or, or in their own business, they, they simply just don't have the time or, or maybe even the resources, like, you know, maybe they don't have solvers. Solvers exist in a different, in a different function, like college, I guess, is like a, or, you know, online courses and stuff like that. But that path is less clear, right, for them. For us, we have solvers. We can figure out how to get better. We know we have a resource to go to. For, for other areas of the world, maybe it's just not as clear for them to access, like, how they're supposed to get better at the things that they need to get better. You and I can look in our HUD stats and we can say, you know, or I can be, you know, working with one of my coaches and they can look in my HUD stats and say, okay, let's see your blind versus blind stats. Like, okay, you're, you know, you're, you're defending way too less or, or little or way too much, or you're, you're opening, you know, from a small blind, you know, way wider range than you should be, whatever. This is something that we can fix immediately because we have the stats and the data in front of us. That doesn't exactly exist in a multitude of formats for maybe other industries. But it's also like the iterations, the number of decisions you get to make in a games like poker and chess um, allow you to really get enough volume so it's not based on chance, right? You can't just say like, oh, I'm just losing a lot in this situation because of chance, which could be the case in business and poker and chess. You get so many iterations that if you're losing over and over and like the Sicilian defense, you probably have a weakness in that game. Whereas especially depends on how close to the top you are. I do feel like in a lot of industries, it's only the bosses that get to make like a lot of discrete decisions or people who are managing other people. And sometimes other jobs, you're just like told what to do. Of course, you don't have as many decisions then that you can then go and analyze later. I completely agree with you that poker as a decision-making model is so important, especially for women, which is some of the work that I'm doing for Poker Power as well as for Poker Stars. So I hope that as poker faces these kind of existential reputational challenges, we do lean into that, that part of it, which has been so extraordinarily successful. I mean, if you just look at like Maria Konnikova's book and how it was a bestseller, it's like, clearly people are hungry for this type of um, coaching, like poker as a decision-making model, not just as a game that you play in a casino. So I, I love to hear that you've been able to use that with the Cleverly Stone Foundation. And of course, with our, our former grid guest, Dara O'Kearney, who's, who's a wonderful guy as well. Yeah. So Katie, I'm so appreciative. I know you have a very busy schedule between your son and you're doing a, a talk to women in construction about poker. That's amazing. To bring us this, this hand with pocket fours, 
how can we stay up to date with all of your exciting activities? Well, I'm on Twitter at Katie Stone Poker, and I'm also on Instagram at Katie Poker. And that is absolutely the best way to keep up with all of my poker work for sure. And uh, yeah, so give me a follow. Katie Stone, you have been an incredible guest. Pocket Four, so much insight into the business of poker, the overlap of chess and poker, and the importance of celebrating kick a butt women in poker chess and business. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jen. This has been a long time coming and I just, uh, you know, I love you so much and I'm just so proud of everything that you are doing in poker and in chess, especially for girls. And you've always been one of my most important mentors and, and one of the women that I have looked up to the most in my life. And so I'm just so, you know, thrilled and grateful that um, both poker and chess audiences are allowed to have a glimpse into the brilliance of your world. And I I just can't wait to see what you do uh, in your career over the next several years. Oh, so sweet. The best, best sign off of the grid so far, Katie Stone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Grid, sponsored by Poker Stars. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.